From SGI USA, I'm Cassidy Bradford, and this is Bootability, the weekly series where I talk with Buddhists from all walks of life about the power we each have to change our lives and the world around us. As we hit the halfway point of December, many of us might be feeling like we're really being dragged to the finish line, waiting for the time where we can take a break and tune out. Each of us deserves the rest and self-care. I like to think of part of my end-of-year care as finishing strong. I was just talking with some Buddhist friends about how the way that we end one year is actually how we start the next. So for this episode's question, we asked you to share something that you want to challenge before we close out 2023. That doesn't mean totally beating it, just mustering the courage to face it head-on before the end of the year. As always, you guys did not hold back and we got some really great answers. We had a couple really concrete goals, like someone wants to work on their professional website for networking and booking work. Several folks shared their determination to get their daily Buddhist practice in rhythm. Some even mentioned being able to wake up early enough to better prepare for their day by chanting. You have no idea how much I relate to that one. One of you wants to challenge your lack of belief in yourself. I hope that you're tuning into today's episode because our guest is sharing exactly how he did that. Believing in yourself feels like a perennial struggle, right? The one great theme of my life seems to be like struggling to see and believe in my own worth, the value of my life, whether it's the value of my ideas, my friendship, the words that I use. The list could go on and on. I'm sure you've heard the common phrase, comparison is the thief of joy. In my case, it's also the thief of self-confidence. The more I compare myself to others, the less I value myself. Buddhism teaches us that we each have our own unique path that only we can follow, an inherent dignity to each life. It's through our Buddhist practice of chanting nam myoho renge kyo that we can come to strengthen the appreciation and resolve that our life is unique and precious. Today's guest, Daniel Sun of Boston, shares how challenging his self-doubt helped him achieve major successes as a scientist and an academic. Hi, my name is Daniel Sun. I live in uh, Cambridge, in Boston, and I'm a scientist at Harvard Medical School. So I work on diseases of the eye, particularly one called glaucoma. I was born in Indonesia. Our family migrated to Australia when I was a kid because my parents wanted you know, us to have a better life, to have a better education. And so I pretty much grew up in Australia. I feel like I kind of grew up in a pretty normal family, I think. Definitely more of an introverted nature person. Definitely don't feel like I could have done this podcast at that time of my life. <laughs> and, you know, I think didn't have much self-awareness and didn't really have many dreams or goals growing up. I think because I didn't have anyone in my environment, you know, telling me to go for dreams or go for goals. That concept or that idea uh, was kind of not instilled in me at that time. I went for a lot of the things that, you know, many people in my environment or in my social circle were going for or what you see other people go for as they grow up. And so, you know, you do the same kind of like just following others. 
So my mom, she was the first one to begin practicing this Buddhism. My dad was a Baptist. He practiced more out of formality. And I think that he was just following his own parents. So my mom and the kids were not really religious. Oh, that's so interesting to like grow up with that kind of exposure to multiple religions. You know, you mentioned that you kind of like followed just what your peers were doing. Where did your interest in science get started? Was that something really early on in your life or like later in college? I think it was later in high school. You know, as I was choosing what to do in university, I really realized like I loved medicine. I loved health, medicine, biology. I hated maths. I hated physics. I hated chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, really, I really enjoyed trying to understand why diseases are the way they are. That, that's, what I, that's what I found I really liked. And so I knew that going into university, I want to do some sort of health-related uh, field. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, when I went to college, I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do at all. Like I knew generically the humanities, but I didn't feel very confident moving forward with like, ooh, this is what I want to do. When you went to university, did it feel like you were figuring it out still or you knew as soon as you started taking classes, oh, this is what I want to pursue? Because obviously, you know, you've gone so far in this field. And I'm wondering like about that little period of time. I, I still wasn't quite sure. Like like you said, I wasn't quite sure whether this was going to be the one. I think it's, it was a whole journey for me, you know, trying to find out, you know, who, who I was, what I liked, what I wanted to do in the future. And, and one example of that is I became an optometrist in Australia. And that's how I got into the field of eye research, because I originally graduated as an optometrist. During the last year of optometry, I realized like, oh man, I can't do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, I, I loved it. I loved seeing patients. I loved interacting with patients and being able to help them. But I still had the feeling like, oh, I don't think I could do this for the rest of my life. And at that time, we were also doing research projects on the side. And that was when I really started to get interested in doing research. I really enjoyed the curiosity and finding things out and it was always different. It was always challenging. And that sense of discovery was really nice. It was really great. And so over the years after I graduated, I, I did practice as an optometrist for, I think, one or two years after that. But then that kind of tapered off and I slowly moved into research full time. When you started to realize, oh, this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life, is that when you decided to pursue your PhD? Yeah, so I got interested in research at the end of the years of doing optometry. Yeah, so I, I did a master's and a PhD. Um, God knows why, but there you go, I did it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Although at that time, you know, doing graduate school in Australia is still not as long as doing graduate school here in the U.S., Got it. Okay, okay. I know that you started practicing Buddhism on your own while you were a PhD student. Can you tell me what it was like studying for your doctorate and why you started practicing? So I mentioned my mom was the first one who practiced. This was when I was in mid middle school, maybe. I, I don't know what interested my mom in learning more about this Buddhism. I guess there must have been something, but that's when she picked it up. That's when she started. So I kind of grew up with it. And so we always had the sound of chanting in the house. 
And, and as I was a kid at that time, well, I, I couldn't care less. That's not the most important thing in your life at that age. Um, and I was very uninterested in it. So when I started having difficulties in graduate school, that's when I began to chant on my own. Like that's when I decided, like I, I'd seen over the number of years, I'd seen my mum grow stronger. She grew stronger, she grew more confident in herself and just have a stronger life state. And so when I started having my own difficulties, seeing my mum change was the impetus to make me think twice and go like, oh, maybe there's something more to this practice. Maybe I'll give it a shot. And so when you first started chanting, was there anything in particular you were chanting about? So I really started chanting on my own when I had moved to New Zealand to do my PhD. I felt that was when I started to say to myself, okay, I'm going to really give this a shot and give it a try and see what happens. When I had just moved to New Zealand, I didn't have any support system. I had no friends, no family, and I had to start from scratch. Um, it also was the first time for me to live for an extended period out of the house. Because growing up, the university was very close to where I lived. So we decided, you know, I wouldn't go to stay in the dorms or anything. I would just catch a train to the uni. Uh, when I lived in New Zealand, that's when I started to chant on my own and practice on my own. I had just moved into a new apartment. And I remember this episode really clearly because I was so surprised. It was so serendipitous. It was a Saturday afternoon in the summer and I had my bedroom windows open and I was just chilling out and reading a book. And uh, I heard kind of like this meditation, this chanting from out my window. I, I didn't know what it was. So I was curious to know, you know, what was going around, around in my neighborhood and all that. So I stuck my head out the window and I found out it was somebody chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. Nam Myoho Renge Kyo are the words that we chant in this Buddhism. And so I nearly fell off my chair. It was like, oh my God, this is like, this is following me. <laughs> this Buddhism has, Buddhism has followed me from Australia to New Zealand. And so it happened that it was the lady upstairs. She was a, a member of the Soka Gakkai International, which is the lay Buddhist organization that we practice with. I immediately ran upstairs <laughs> and I knocked on her door and I introduced myself told her I was new. I had just moved to the country, but I was a practitioner from Australia. She took me to meetings in Auckland, the local meetings there, and also to the Buddhist center in Auckland. And so that's how I kind of really developed and grew my practice. Yeah. So that, that, was, that was kind of how I began. <laughs> wow. That is such a wild story. So you start chanting then and, you know, attending meetings. And I understand that you had a pretty big victory toward the end of your PhD in terms of like your job search. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that. Towards the end of my PhD, it's natural for one to have to decide what to do next, where to go. This was actually a period of time in my life when I really first got like observable benefits from the practice, like tangible, like, wow, you know, this is amazing. And so I was at the time of deciding where to go. One of the goals that I had was to come to the U.S. to do research. The research was, it was amazing, you know, the stuff that I was reading that I realized was being done in the U.S. was really exciting. And there's a lot more resources, a lot more expertise here. And so I knew that I wanted to develop my science by coming here. That's, that's one thing that I knew I wanted to do. But at the same time, I also was kind of scared. <laughs> you know, I also didn't know how I could make that happen, how it would turn out and what that would look like. 
Australia to New Zealand is not that different. It's four-hour flight, and um, culturally, it's not so so different. You know, in New Zealand to to the U.S. was a huge step. It's very far. You know, you can't just fly back anytime you want. And so, I was kind of、um, worried how how it would all turn out. So I started applying for jobs. At the same time, I was really chanting to awaken that wisdom in me to know what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go. I was applying online, seeing what was available for about you know a couple of months, and chanting at the same time. But after a few months, I realized I'm not getting anywhere. Like this can't be how it's supposed to be. <laughs> like I'll never get to the U.S. if things are like this and continue to be like this. So I, I really chanted, and it was. During one of those chanting sessions, where it clicked to me, and I think that you know this is one of the the benefits of chanting is that we awaken to a greater wisdom within ourselves. And a light bulb kind of like went off in my mind, and 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 I said like, okay, I'm gonna start emailing the people that I want to work with. And you know, retrospectively, I think that that's normal. Why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> you know, but at that time for me, as a younger person, it didn't come naturally, and so I started emailing. Specifically, these people that I wanted to work with, and it was great because I got responses. And there were three particular people that I wanted to work with that replied and that offered me interviews. I was super, super excited, and I couldn't believe it. I replied and I told them I would be at a conference in Florida, and after the conference, can I come and visit your your labs? I'll give my presentation. We can have an interview. And then see where things are going, and it was remarkable because these three labs were not advertising. You know, they they were not looking for people. That was the real great benefit that they still allowed me and were interested in having me over. I visited the labs. I gave the presentations and all that, but it was scary. I I chanted a lot through the whole interview process because it was my first time in the U.S. The way people interact in the U.S. is very different from the way that people interact in Australia and New Zealand. And that kind of scared me a little bit, you know. At that age, first time overseas, during those times, I I really chanted a lot to like calm my nerves and to not get anxious and not to get stressed, you know, because it was still quite early in my practice. I didn't know what to chant about other than the fact that okay, I've I've got a chant, and so it really helped me calm my nerves and not be nervous in the interviews. Long story short, the three labs offered me the three positions, which I was really. Amazed at because they were not advertised and and whatnot. The next difficult thing for me was to decide which one to choose. That was really challenging as well because I I really liked them all. I really liked what they were doing and being a scientist, I like to read. I like to study, and so at that time I was also studying a lot, just you know reading it to try to understand more about this Buddhism, and more about Daisaku Ikeda. Who is the president of the Sokogaka International?、Uh, one of the things that struck me at that time, which helped me make a decision, was that Daisaku Ikeda had always emphasized friendship in life to develop good friendships. Reading about his life, he always traveled the world not only to share this humanistic philosophy of Buddhism, but also to create friendships around the world. And so that kind of characteristics of him really struck me at that time. And so, in deciding which of those three job offers to take, I, I decided by determining which of the bosses I thought and I felt I could be friends with in the coming years or in the years of working with them. 
And that happened to be the one at Harvard. <laughs> you know, um, actually, of the three, he was the most accomplished. He was further along in his career. He was really well accomplished. And I really enjoyed the way that he thought about problems. But he was also the most chilled back and relaxed and the friendliest and the one that I thought I could be friends with. And, and I think it suited my Australian personality at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's how I, I ended up in Harvard. It was, it was um, you know, through chanting and through, you know, studying about the life of Daisaku Ikeda. It just so happened to be in Harvard, although I, I would have chosen the others just as well. And it turned out really well because the topics and the questions that I've been working on and studying have really turned out well for me. So it was very, very good choice. <laughs> I mean, that entire story is just so kind of mind-blowing. And I think it shows that, you know, even though, like you mentioned, you were earlier on in your practice and still kind of learning, that the power of chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo isn't dependent on, like, how much you've studied it, right? Like, it's powerful, even if you don't understand what it means. And I feel like this experience shows that, right? You just knew, okay, I know that I need to chant about this. And automatically, you're bringing out wisdom, courage, compassion, so that you can make the right decisions. It's not that, like, oh, if I chant for 15, 20, 30 years, then I'm going to have these like big victories in my life. It can be really at any point, which is amazing. I know that once you started at Harvard, that was stepping your feet into the reality of academic career and life. I can imagine it was maybe competitive or could be intimidating. Could you tell me about like what the scientific environment was like and how you adjusted to your new job? It was a surprise. It was challenging. It was eye-opening. I mean, Boston is one of the you know great places to do science in the U.S. I found it very challenging and very competitive and already kind of like having a type A nature at work and wanting to be accomplished. I felt a lot of pressure here to do well you know, to get significant results, to publish in high impact journals, to answer like big life questions. And it was really hard in the beginning for me to keep up. And so over time, I began to lose self-esteem. I suffered from self-doubt, from low confidence. After a while, I felt that my science was really of no value. And part of this problem, you know, I think retrospectively looking back at it was that I continually compared myself to others, like how others were doing all the time. That, that really made me suffer a lot for about the first two or so years. Yeah, it was really uncomfortable and um, I was all alone here. And I would go into these negative thought cycles uh, where I would say to myself, oh man, this person is younger than me, but they've been able to publish more papers than I have or that they've been able to publish in more prestigious journals. Their science was more advanced than what I was doing. And this just continued day in and day out. And then... I started to feel that, oh, I obtained my PhD training from New Zealand. Maybe that was not of a, of a high enough standards to help me to do science in, in Boston. You know, I, I started asking whether I had made the right choice, that it was too hard, maybe I should just give up. And so I felt that this original great benefit that I had gotten, or this great challenge that I had overcome to come to the US was suddenly like a bad idea. And there were many days where I felt lost and really wanted to go back home to family in Australia. 
Yeah, so that was my first two years.、Wow. <laughs> it was kind of it was kind of a big shock for me because you know, thinking like, wow, I had made it to the U.S. You know, and then suddenly like everything just collapsed. It was unexpected. It was difficult, but I really grew out of it. I really had to fight my negative thinking and my negativity, and really grew a lot out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that experiences like. Surprisingly common when people accomplish something big, or you know, you start a new job. It's so fun, and then the first chunk of time, you feel like I don't know what I'm doing. Why did they hire me? <laughs> What's going on? Or like university too. Maybe you're a top student in high school, but then when you get to university, everybody was a top student in high school. You know, it's so easy, I think, to get. That kind of like shock. <laughs> I've got kind of like a two-part question. The first piece is just what was your practice looking like at that time that you were really struggling, and then the second part is、uh, was there any Buddhist concept that you studied around that time that really helped you kind of work through everything? I remember that I had to chant because that was something that I learned going through my graduate school and in this practice. That you know, okay, if I feel uncomfortable, if I feel unhappy, just chant. But what I also learned was that I also had to study. You know, as a scientist, I, I mentioned I, I like to read. I like to understand why things are the way they are. So I studied to understand more about this Buddhism. And so it was at that time I came across some ideas and some concepts that really changed the way that I looked at myself, the way that I perceived my problems and my struggles and challenges in life. You know, I also looked for a lot of Buddhist materials on comparing oneself or self-doubt. Like, what was the Buddhist perspective on comparing oneself? You know, how can I use Buddhism to overcome this real-life daily struggle? What has Buddhism got to teach me about these issues? Those are the kinds of questions I kind of asked myself at that time. And so I dove deep into the study, and and at that time I came across. Some of these these concepts, which、uh, maybe I can share some quotes. There were a couple that really affected me. Daisaku Ikeda emphasizes believing in our own Buddha nature and that each of us has our own unique mission in life. Even from the beginning, this kind of like blew me out of the waters because I was thinking like, oh man, I have a Buddha nature. Each one of us has our own unique mission. I think as somebody who never practiced Buddhism before, these concepts are really. Interesting and also kind of hopeful. The first one that really struck me was this one. He says, "Quote: Buddhism uses the example of flowering fruit trees, cherry, plum, pear, etc., to illustrate how each person has a unique mission in life. A cherry tree fulfills its purpose by blooming and bearing fruit as a cherry tree. It never tries to be anything other than itself. It never imitates the blossoms of other flowering trees or wastes time being jealous of them." Rather, it patiently bears the frosts and snows of winter, drawing energy from the earth itself, pushing its roots deeper into the soil. Then, with the arrival of spring, in a burst, it unleashes all the life force that it had been storing up, sending forth countless blossoms. End quote. And so, when I read this, this was really amazing. How I thought of it was that you can make plum wine, but you don't usually think of making cherry wine. <laughs> right, and so each fruit I realized is unique and has its own mission, and so through this study and through this analogy, I realized what I was doing wrong—that I was a cherry trying to be a plum, which doesn't make any sense at all. And that was kind of like a slap in my face. 
Firstly, it made me realize fundamentally that I was comparing myself because I don't think that prior to this huge struggle in my life, I realized that I was doing that. Yeah, that that concept didn't had entered my mind. But then this this analogy kind of explains what the problem was, which was really striking for me. And then there was another one quote: "If you seek enlightenment outside yourself, then your performing even ten thousand practices and ten thousand good deeds will be in vain. It is like the case of a poor man who spends night and day counting his neighbor's wealth, but gains not even half a coin." That is why the Tiantai School's commentary states: "Unless one perceives the nature of one's life." One cannot eradicate one's grave offenses. End quote. But I realize here that by continually comparing myself to others, I was that poor man, you know, continually counting my neighbor's wealth, and at the same time not perceiving my own Buddha nature. And that was like another slap in my face. <laughs> at this time, my face was going very red. <laughs> But it was, it was just like somebody was revealing to me at the deepest level. Like what my problem was, and that because it was an analogy, it was so clear, you know, what I was doing. And then the third one, he says, "Quote: Everyone has some kind of gift. Without doubt, you possess your special jewel, your own unique talent. In the same way, each of us has a mission that only we can fulfill. That mission will not be found somewhere far away in doing something special or extraordinary." We realize our purpose in life by doing our very best where we are right at this moment, by thinking about what we can do to improve the lives of those right around us. You cannot discover and realize your purpose in life with half-hearted efforts. End quote. This this one really struck me because I didn't think that my work was up to standards and I didn't believe in its value, and so I had stopped putting any effort into it. And I think this is common with everybody, where when we start to not like our work for some reason. When we can't find value in what we're doing, then we don't give our wholehearted, one hundred percent effort into it, and that was what I was doing. Like I had gradually begun to do this over time, and when I read this, you know, Daisaku Ikeda was telling me that I didn't have to be doing something extraordinary, like I didn't have to be doing some sort of special advanced science, and I didn't have to be in a special location to be doing great science. All I had to do was give one hundred percent. Blood, sweat, and tears. Where I am right now, and then through that process, you know, we'll be able to realize our purpose in life. I was making half-hearted efforts, and so when I read this, it made me realize that I had trouble finding my purpose because I hadn't tried hard enough. I hadn't tried with my full abilities, and therefore I couldn't see my own potential. Yeah, and so this really helped me reorient my mindset, my attitude. I really read this over and over and over, and I kept it close with me. After a while, realizing this, I felt very liberated, very free,、uh, like a huge weight had been taken off me. I guess because I knew why I was having such a hard time. You know, I still struggle, but I don't suffer, and I think that they're two different things. One of the great things about this Buddhism and this practice and chanting is that it is a philosophy, but it gives you a framework to find value and meaning in the struggles that you have in your life. And I think that's very important because when we struggle and suffer without any meaning, then it's really painful because you then start to ask yourself like, why is this happening to me? And you become kind of like feeling like a victim. But I think that if you have a framework to where you can find meaning and value and understand why you're going through it, 
then you can actually transform it. You can reshape it into a sense of mission. I think this is one of the great powers of this Buddhism. And studying the Buddhism is tremendously helpful. You know, apart from being a scientist and the fact that I love to study, I found deep meaning in the study in that it has helped to reorient my mind. I think that's, for me, is the fundamental purpose of study, is to open my mind and reorient it in a different direction. I think that I struggle a lot, or people struggle a lot in their life because we keep doing the same thing over and over again. We hit a wall, we hit a challenge. We can't overcome it because we approach it in the same way as we have always done, whether it's subconsciously or consciously. And so we create the same output, we create the same result because we're doing the same thing. And so when I study, it changes my attitude about what I can do or how to approach a problem. And by doing that, then the output becomes different. And that, I think, is, for me, the beauty of studying. Otherwise, I just spin the wheels in my head, you know. I get into the negative cycles and I do it again and again and again. I think, I think it's very human to do that. I do that. And so that's why I think like studying is really crucial. It gets me out of my head and, and it, it enables me to take more humanistic action. Yeah, it's, it's helped me realize a lot about myself. I think that you were able to articulate so much of what it is like to practice this Buddhism day to day as we're chanting and then studying allows us, like you said, to kind of like be able to see our lives really clearly and identify, oh, this is the thing in my life that is really causing me suffering. I thought that it was all of these other people being better than me, but actually it was me comparing myself to others, um, just as kind of an example in your case. And I think that that, I don't know, is just a really beautiful illustration of what our human revolution can look like. And for those listening that haven't heard human revolution, it you know means like this inner transformation. So I'm wondering, it sounds like this was a major turning point for you, this kind of point of studying and identifying these things. So as that was happening, what did your career look like? How did things change for you? Yeah, so it was a big turning point for me. After, you know, I was able to see that about myself, as I said, I felt more liberated, more free, like a weight had been taken off my shoulders. You know, my career kind of, actually it jumped, it jump started. (laughs) (laughs) Quite soon after that, I submitted a paper into a very well-respected journal. This was a paper that, at the submission, actually, my old negativities had come up. When I was writing this paper, I had kind of almost like argued with my boss because I didn't think it was advanced enough. I was thinking like, man, this work was not good enough. It wasn't advanced enough. How is it going to be even looked at or accepted by this journal? But my boss was quite confident that it was really good. And so at that time, I really chanted a lot to overcome uh, those old negativities of mine reappearing. I also participated in a lot of Buddhist activities. I chanted with my friends. I continued to study a lot about this Buddhism. Also continued to support others in their practice of this Buddhism. And you know, this was really all in an effort to keep my life condition or my life state really high so that I wouldn't go and have these negative thoughts in my mind again. But eventually we did submit the paper and I received an email on Saturday morning from the editor that it was accepted not only that, it didn't require any corrections, which I was really uh, 
shocked and surprised that it was accepted as is, which is quite rare in high-impact journals. And the editor in the email congratulated me because it was the first time in the 10 years of him being the editor that something like this had ever happened. And, you know, it was by uh, very basic methodologies, very basic experimental designs. It was nothing advanced. This was a huge turning point for me, having the paper accepted in this way and being congratulated in this way. It really removed my self-doubt. It removed lack of confidence, any feelings that I was not capable. It was my own delusion that, you know, I wasn't good enough. And then very soon after this, I was then invited by another really good journal to write a review paper on the subject, on the topic. So those two things really sparked my career, really kickstarted my career, really gave me huge amounts of confidence. Yeah, it changed. It changed a lot. I mean, it's wild to me. I know like a couple of folks in academia and it is kind of (laughs) not unheard of, but like really not common. I really appreciated how you shared that it was like your old negativity still came back up. Sometimes we can think, oh, okay, I have this one breakthrough in my life or I discover something and now it's gone forever. Like maybe sometimes you can really like wipe something out, but Oftentimes it's a process to like keep battling our own negativity, but that we can do that, right? We can battle our negativity and as we do that, then our environment reflects that. And I think like this accomplishment is like kind of a example of that, like this reflection of you are really battling to be able to value your life and see the value of your work. And as you are fighting to do that, then your environment is also kind of reflecting that. As things started to like shift after that, were there any other like big things that you wanted to accomplish in your career? Yeah, so that feeling like I was good and having more confident, I started to write grants. And so, you know, one of the big grants that we apply for in neuroscience is from the NIH, National Institute of Health. I think it's the largest and most important government agency funding neuroscience within the US. The type of grant that I applied for is highly sought after. It's highly competitive. It's worth a lot of money. And for most people, getting this grant is a key stepping stone towards being able to become an independent scientist, getting your research lab up and running, being able to use the money to hire people. And so this is the grant that I really wanted. (laughs) And so, again, I went back to my chanting, chanting feverishly and supporting as many, you know, Buddhist activities as I can to not be swayed in my determination to hold back my self-doubt and my fears that maybe I wasn't good enough to get it. Um, And so I applied for this grant. And several months later, I was awarded the grant. I was very shocked. It was my first time, so I really didn't know what to expect. But I was awarded the full amount of money for the maximum number of years, which was five years. And, you know, sometimes NIH reduces the amount of money you get or the number of years that you are able to have the money for. But what was extra, extra amazing was that, again, this was my first attempt at the grant. And similar to the paper, they didn't ask for any corrections. It was accepted as is. So, you know, I was I was really blown over. And you're right in terms of like, you know, I think that when we can really chant and use this Buddhism to battle our negativity and do our human revolution, we're really able to change the environment. 
the grant and the papers reinforced a lot for me and it really changed a lot of my career. And it's always been a massive turning point in both my career and my Buddhist practice. You know, now I have my own lab. I have several people working. It's still a challenge. Academia remains difficult. I, I Honestly, I can't say it's like the easiest thing in the world. Managing people is challenging and, you know, continuing to have funding keeps me up at night. But I feel like I understand myself better. I have tools to challenge the issues. When I start to have these doubts and the fears and all these things that come back up in my life, I know how to face it. I know how to challenge it. I know how to suppress it. I know where to go. I kind of have this toolbox to use. You know, I'm, I'm better prepared. I, I also shifted my values. And I think that is really crucial. I think before this Buddhist practice, what was important to me was what kind of papers I produced. <laughs> you know, how many grants I had, the quality of the journals that I published in, all these kind of external things. You know, now I really look towards what can I change about myself? How can I improve myself in this journey of running a lab, of being in this unique position as an immigrant in the US doing science, and how I can support others in a similar situation to do this? And what kind of human revolution can I do in this journey but yeah, it's really helped me change my values and change my focus. It's, it's a wonderful journey. I feel like you're really showing or illustrating that it always comes down to us. Like academia, science didn't become any less competitive or any less challenging, right? But that you now have the these tools and belief in your life that you can still accomplish anything. Because I think sometimes, you know, maybe for people listening that don't practice Buddhism or maybe haven't started chanting yet, they might think, oh, this sounds like really magical and I can just chant and everything's perfect. And that's, everything does get better, but like not because it's magic or your circumstances magically change. It's all about like your own inner transformation and your ability to tackle things and not be discouraged by your environment. So I think that's also really I'm glad that you kind of shared that. And so it really seems like your life and your career have opened up so much since when you first started your practice. So I'm wondering if you have any advice or encouragement for a student that's facing a similar kind of struggle as you did early on in your practice. I, I think believing in ourselves is really amazing. But also at the same time, I think it's one of the hardest things that we have to learn to do. And I think that it can take a lifetime for us to do that. And I think that that is one of the purposes of our lives, to believe in ourselves and to awaken to our Buddha nature, the full potential of our life. And I think that we try to find that in different ways in the journey of our life, but we get sidetracked. For me, this Buddhism is a quick shortcut to that. I, I recall this um, a quote from Daisaku Ikeda, which I really love and which I keep going back to where he says, Quote, when you are young, it's very important to believe in yourself. It is essential for young people to have something they can truly believe in. They need to trust their own hearts. End quote. And then he goes on to say that the purpose of our practice is to make our hearts strong and steadfast, to believe, to develop inner strength and conviction. Everything depends on our minds and our hearts. And it resonated with me a lot because it's true that, you know, uh, we need to believe in our own Buddha nature and we have to develop conviction in our own lives. 
that's something I think is really challenging. And the other thing that I really realized, which I think is really valuable for all of us, is this sense of wisdom. Wisdom that we get about life. Wisdom that debunks the way I think I should live my life. And wisdom that tells me how I should live a more humanistic life as a human being. And I feel like before I practiced, this was nowhere near in my radar. Wisdom, I thought was like Confucianism or like it's some like old man who imparts wisdom to you, like that kind of wisdom. But having practiced this Buddhism over many years, like the wisdom that you get is just phenomenal. As a scientist, I collect knowledge. That's what I do. One of the things that I realized and one of the things that that helped me become and do the science that I am able to now is that you need wisdom to be able to know what to do with the knowledge. I could spend days, months, my hard-earned money on collecting knowledge, but then if I don't know what to do with it, it's a waste of time. And science is not the easiest, nor is it the quickest of tasks. And so I, I realized that I could be spending a lot of time answering the wrong questions, doing the wrong experiments if I had no wisdom. If you're going to start this practice, one of the great benefits is wisdom. We, we always make choices in our lives. Our lives is full of choices. You know, we have to go down path A or path B. And it is the wisdom that you have that determines which of the choices that you take. Without the proper wisdom guiding you, you will continue to go down the wrong path. And that's, yeah, definitely why I think studying Buddhism and chanting are so crucial, because that really is like I use my Buddhist practice every day so that I have the ability to like navigate my life in a way that's humanistic. It's creating value. And I think it's definitely the case in academia or for people that are students and wondering, like, how do I use this knowledge that I'm accumulating for for good? Um, and I have just a couple more questions. You know, we've talked about your many accomplishments so far, um, but I'm sure that you still have things that you're dreaming about or challenging in your life. So I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about anything you're chanting about, like towards your future. To be able to continue to obtain funding yeah. <laughs> nonstop, year, year after year after year. You know, that's that's a big one for me in academia. You know, I'm basically supported by grant funding. So that's a big one. But also, I really want to continue to nurture people. I think that to have people go through the lab and to be able to nurture them, I really want to do that. I think that managing people and encouraging them is difficult. I really want to challenge myself and challenge those aspects of my personality that does not allow me to do that as best as I think I can. Because before having a lab, a lot of the things I did was by myself or with just one or two other people. But you know, having a lab opens up new responsibilities and exposes you to more people, you know, so I really want to challenge that side of me that I feel like I really need to improve to better those things. Yeah, I mean, each obstacle or we can call like earthly desires are what allow us to really see things in our lives that are causing us suffering and act as this mirror for us to do our human revolution. So there will always be more like challenges in our lives and always more goals, which is why I kind of asked this question, because this process of practicing Buddhism and doing our human revolution is truly like lifelong. So 
To finish up, I just have one more question for you. I'm wondering if you have any advice for someone who is encouraged by your story and wants to start practicing. Well, several things helped me and my early you know, period of practicing. And, and one of those things, as, and I go back again here, is the study. I like to study. And some people may not like to study. They just maybe like just to chant. Like they like the sound of chanting, but I really do encourage people to study <laughs> because it helps you to understand what the chanting means, how you're supposed to feel, what you're supposed to experience. Without context of the chanting, it's not very exciting. You still get benefit, but it's, it's not a whole. Maybe like an analogy I can share is like modern cars nowadays have a lot of electronics. And so if you buy those cars, let's say it's a $250,000 car, you need either somebody to explain it to you, what all the buttons and all the menus do. You either go, go read a manual or you need to go on YouTube and see how other people explain what the car does. So let's say you do neither of those three. You buy this $250,000 car, you take it home. The car salesman has promised you all these things that the car can do. And you take it home and then you drive it, but you can't seem to awaken the full potential of the car because you've not read the manual, you've not had anybody explain to you what the car does, and you haven't gone on YouTube to find out what people can do with the car. And I, I kind of feel like that's a bit like Buddhism. It's like, you know, when you start practicing Buddhism, if you don't have somebody to explain what the Buddhism does, what it is, what the chanting means, and all of that, or you don't go to Buddhist meetings, or you don't hear about other people's experiences, then you won't be able to really fully explore understand or feel the potential of the Buddhism. And it's the same thing. It's like if you don't test drive the car, like when you test drive the car, you take it, you drive it fast, you drive it slow, you drive it on the freeway, you take it through all this rough terrain and see what the car can do. Same as this Buddhism, like if you don't take it for a test drive through your own daily struggles, you won't be able to know what the Buddhism can do for you. If you don't test drive the Buddhism, like let's say, oh, I'm having this particular challenge I'm going through in life. Okay, that's a great time to test drive the car. That's a great time to test drive the Buddhism. And then maybe, oh, okay, I have this other struggle. It's different, but it's still a struggle. Okay, this is another opportunity to take Buddhism for a test drive through that particular struggle. It's like taking, you know, maybe a four wheel drive through the water versus driving in the freeway you know, you take it through different terrains. So you, when you begin practicing, I really feel like you've, you've got to do all those things to really get a feeling of this Buddhism. So, you know, that's what I really uh, encourage. Also to develop a regular daily rhythm of chanting, of going to your local meetings, listening to others experience about this Buddhism, but also asking questions to people you know, what their experiences have been and what does this mean, what does that mean? The daily rhythm part is really important. It was important for me and it was stressed upon me when I began practicing. The analogy is like going to the gym and wanting to build muscle, you know, or build weights. You know, many people have experienced, like if you go to the gym very haphazardly uh, without a regular schedule, then you, you really don't develop any of the things that you really went to the gym for. It's the same as the Buddhist practice. It's like, I think it's really important to develop a regular rhythm, even if it's like five minutes in the morning and in the evening daily, it's really key. So, oh, and maybe the last thing is to really persist with it. 
it's, it's not easy because when you think about it, fundamentally we're trying to change to improve our life, to recreate our life, to reinvent our life, to find happiness in our life. And those things are not supposed to be easy. Daniel is absolutely right. It's tough work to revolutionize our lives. It doesn't happen with one snap of the fingers. It requires persistent efforts. At a university's entrance ceremony, Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Keita gave a speech and talked exactly about this. He said, Never for an instant forget the effort to renew your life, to build yourself anew. Creativity means to push open the heavy, groaning doorway of life itself. This is not an easy task. Instead, it may be the most severely challenging struggle there is. For opening the door to your own life is in the end more difficult than opening the door to all the mysteries of the universe. But to do so is to vindicate your existence as human beings. Daniel would be proud to know that I found that quote through studying. While Daniel is a scientist that loves to study, I have a bookshelf full of things that I have not yet cracked open. That's one reason that I'm grateful to be part of my local Buddhist community. We regularly study together and discuss applying these concepts to our daily lives. Without the support of others, it's highly unlikely I would get much studying done. If you're interested in getting connected to the Bootability community near you, you can email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. For next week's question, we're asking you to share a quality you love about one of your friends. You can email us or reach out on Instagram. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>